Welcome to the 99 Topics for the CCFP Exam podcast. I'm your host, Dr. Brady Bouchard. Welcome to the very first episode of the CCFP podcast. In each episode, we'll be covering one of the 99 topics for the Canadian Certification and Family Practice Examination. Um, each topic will be run down essentially the same. We'll start by briefly listing the key features as written by the CFPC, and then we'll dive a little deeper into each one to hopefully give us a useful overview of the material. This podcast series isn't meant to be comprehensive, it's merely complementary in helping stimulate your own study. So, today's topic, very first one and a huge topic to start with, is abdominal pain. There's eight key features in this topic and we'll run down them quickly here. So, number one, given a patient with abdominal pain, paying particular attention to its location and chronicity, distinguish between acute and chronic pain, generate a complete differential, and investigate in an appropriate and timely fashion. Number two, in a patient with diagnosed abdominal pain, uh, for example, gastroesophageal reflux disease, peptic ulcer disease, ulcerative colitis, or Crohn's, manage specific pathology appropriately i.e. with medications or lifestyle modifications. Number three, in a woman with abdominal pain, always rule out pregnancy if she is of reproductive age, suspect a gynecological cause for abdominal pain, and do a pelvic exam if appropriate. In a patient with acute abdominal pain, differentiate between a surgical and a non-surgical abdomen. Number five, in specific patient groups, include group-specific surgical causes of acute abdominal pain in your differential. Number six, given a patient with a life-threatening cause of acute abdominal pain, i.e. a ruptured AAA or a ruptured ectopic, recognize the life-threatening situation, make the diagnosis, stabilize the patient, and promptly refer the patient for definitive treatment. Number seven, in a patient with chronic or recurrent abdominal pain, ensure adequate follow-up to monitor new or changing symptoms or signs, manage symptomatically with medication or lifestyle modification, and always consider cancer in a patient at risk. Number eight, and finally, given a patient with a diagnosis of inflammatory bowel disease, recognize an extra-intestinal manifestation. So let's dive a little deeper into it. Number one is all about distinguishing acute and chronic pain. So what do we mean by that, and how do you differentiate? Well, there's no magic number that we can use as a cutoff. It's a spectrum of pain. It's a spectrum of disease. Pain for a few days, getting worse, it's clearly acute. Pain that has gone on for months may wax and wane, but generally stays at the same level, is clearly chronic. Pain that doesn't fit into either category is difficult. You can call it subacute if you want, um, but it requires looking at a wider differential. So why do we care? Because it helps narrow our differential somewhat. It can give an early indication that this pain is likely to keep getting worse in the short term, or if maybe you have some time to order investigations and work it up. So part B of key feature number one is generate a complete differential diagnosis, which is kind of ridiculous. There's tons of pathology in the abdomen. There's tons of pathology below and above the abdomen that can get referred into the abdomen. The way I like to split it up is by location of the pain, and so into nine uh, abdominal sections. I'll just go through quickly. Uh, some of the different causes that are specific to certain areas, but in general you have to keep a fairly wide uh, differential in your head with any abdominal pain. Pain can present in a 
quadrature an area that you don't suspect. So to start with, centralized or periumbilical pain, um, gastroenteritis can be here, uh, bowel obstruction pain, uh, the severe disproportional to the clinical picture pain of mesenteric ischemia, um, generalized peritonitis will obviously be here as well as everywhere everywhere else in the abdomen. Abdominal aortic dissection can start epigastric and go down central and can continue down. Uh, pancreatitis pain is here, sickle cell crisis pain, and it's obviously a classic presentation of early appendicitis. Right upper quadrant pain, um, this is your hepatitis pain, your biliary colic, your acute cholecystitis, um, dyspepsia pain can be on the right side, pyelonephritis pain if it's associated with the right kidney, ascending cholangitis, and pneumonia. Right lower quadrant pain, appendicitis, inflammatory bowel disease, renal colic, uh, salpingitis, uh, ruptured cyst, ovarian cyst, ovarian torsion, uh, or an ectopic pregnancy. Left upper quadrant, think pancreatitis again, think splenic infarction, uh, somewhat of a rare cause but associated with AF, so think of it in that context. Pyelonephritis again with left-sided kidney and pneumonia. Left lower quadrant pain, inflammatory bowel disease, diverticulitis, often thought of as left-sided appendicitis, sigmoid volvulus, uh, kidney stone, uh, salpingitis again, the same gynecological causes, you have ovaries on both sides, so a ruptured ovarian cyst, ectopic pregnancy. Uh, and then finally, epigastric pain. So MI is one not to miss here with epigastric pain, uh, dyspepsia is commonly here, pancreatitis pain is commonly here. And you can get pneumonia pain here, especially if you get diaphragmatic irritation. And then some specific presentations to think about. So in bowel obstruction, you're going to have a sudden onset of generalized diffuse abdominal pain. They'll be anorexic, they'll be bloated, um, they'll be nauseous and often vomiting. They can be vomiting a lot. It can be bilious or fecalent, depending on the level of the obstruction. Um, and the time between their last meal and onset of vomiting can often give you an idea of how proximal or distal the obstruction is. Uh, more proximal obstruction will have vomiting early, earlier on after meals. Pancreatitis pain, this is usually severe abdominal pain that lasts for days. It's banding pain radiating to the back. They're severely dehydrated due to third spacing and often severe nausea and frequent vomiting associated with it. And then ascending cholangitis. So the triad, fever, jaundice, right upper quadrant pain. Don't forget it. And then going beyond uh, specific presentations to specific populations. So in children, constipation is really common, but that should be your diagnosis of exclusion, essentially. Look for the more serious causes. Intussusception, mesenteric lymphadenitis, uh, Meckel's diverticulum, Hennig-Schönlein purpura, um, hemolytic uremic syndrome. Uh, in women, always think ectopic pregnancy. Always think pregnancy in general until it's been proven otherwise. Also think of endometriosis, especially if it's cyclical pain, pelvic inflammatory disease, especially in at-risk patients. So those with previous STIs, risky sexual practices, on examination, cervical motion tenderness, or uh, vaginal discharge. And then in older patients with abdominal pain, uh, the general point here is have a low threshold for investigation. They can often present with non-specific or generalized symptoms or mild symptoms of serious conditions. The frequency of misdiagnosis here is high. 
common things in this population. Uh, appendicitis still, you can have appendicitis at any age, aneurysmal disease, mesenteric ischemia. So that's usually pain out of proportion to the clinical picture, but a more ominous sign is pain that goes away, which means they already have dead gut, uh, diverticulitis, and small bowel obstruction. Um, and then some bolded points that you really got to uh, hit home here. The physical exam for abdominal pain in a childbearing woman is not complete unless a pelvic exam is being done. Uh, similarly, the physical exam for abdominal pain in a male patient is not complete unless the genitals and inguinal regions are examined. You can often get referred pain from of testicular origin or from the scrotal sac. Um, and inguinal hernias, we all know, are quite common, especially in overweight men. So on to C of key feature number one. We're still on key feature number one. Investigate in an appropriate and timely fashion. So in general, with abdominal pain, you should be looking at basic labs and then specific tests based on your differential to add on to that. So complete blood count, uh, electrolytes, urea, creatinine, glucose, probably in everybody. Um, you can add liver function tests if you're worried about a biliary tree, hepatic origin of disease. Uh, bilirubin, direct and indirect, um, lipase and amylase for pancreatitis. Um, your center will probably only have one or the other. For celiac disease, there's a couple of specific tests you can do. Um, IgA tests, uh, anti-tissue transglutaminase, IgA tests. Make sure they're still eating gluten, otherwise it's not going to work. Um, the tests you'll be able to do will vary based on your lab. But all the IgA tests have uh, roughly 90% sensitivity. If you have a high clinical suspicion, then you should probably just send them for a duodenal biopsy and skip the screening test. Uh, other investigations you need to do, this goes on with Part B, a pregnancy test in all women of childbearing potential. Um, just do it routinely, get into the habit. Uh, urine is as good as serum unless you need the quantitative. Plain film, three views of the abdomen is a reasonable screening test for bowel obstruction, ileus, and free air on the upright film. Um, although often not that helpful. Ultrasound should be your first line investigation in the acute abdomen. It's good at looking at gallbladder disease, gynecological problems, AAA, appendicitis, and renal stones. Uh, CT abdomen is a reasonable second line, and for some physicians it's a first line just because of resource issues with ultrasound or because they're more comfortable with CT. But remember, it's 20 times the radiation dose of even your plain films, um, and especially someone with... Uh, reasons to present often with abdominal pain, they're going to get a huge radiation dose over the lifetime. Um, where you should consider CT abdomen is if the ultrasound is done but it's equivocal or technically inadequate. And then gastroscopy, colonoscopy, refer them for those investigations if they have frank PR blood, um, if you're thinking of inflammatory bowel disease or celiac disease. Key feature number two, in a patient with diagnosed abdominal pain, Manage specific pathology appropriately. So we'll go through these, the more common ones briefly. A lot of this is going to be looking up material on your own and just getting into the mode of remembering what your initial management is for the common pathologies that we present with. GERD is the first one, gastroesophageal reflux disease. Lifestyle modifications are king here. So elevating the head of the bed, avoidance of certain foods, um, if they know what their trigger foods are, or just in general trigger foods for most people. So chocolate, peppermint, excessive alcohol, um, weight loss, and avoid meals after 6 p.m. I tell all my patients with GERD, no eating after 6 p.m. 
it makes a world of difference. Medications you can add on, proton pump inhibitors, PPIs, um, or H2 antagonists. Both of those are over the counter now in Canada, the PPI only very recently, so you will get patients self-medicating. And then in certain cases, if you think it's a motility problem that's causing their GERD, prokinetic agents are reasonable, and metoclopramide is a good one here. Peptic ulcer disease, the key here is looking for and eradicating H. pylori. Uh, Anti-secretory therapy after H. pylori eradication um, needs to happen as well, so either with a proton pump inhibitor for many weeks or an H2 antagonist. Um, our surgeons here will do 12 weeks at a time of PPI before they reevaluate for symptoms. Inflammatory bowel disease, so this is the immunosuppressives, 5-ASAs, sulfasalazine, prednisone, cyclosporin, um, IV hydrocortisone if they're in acute crisis, uh, antibiotics if it's a colitis flare as well, so metronidazole and ciprofloxacin for normal gut flora that might transmigrate through the inflammatory bowel. Anti-TNF medications, so infliximab is the key one that's used around here. Uh, and then warning signs that you may need gastroscopy or biopsy. So age over 50 at first presentation, if they have associated weight loss, especially un unintended weight loss, persistent vomiting, dysphagia, unexplained anemia, hematemesis, uh, palpable abdominal mass, or a family history of GI cancer. So key feature number three in a woman with abdominal pain, always rule out the pregnancy and then suspect a gynecological cause. So that's what we already talked about here, but your ruptured ovarian cysts, your ovarian torsion, your pelvic inflammatory disease, endometriosis, it could be as simple as primary or secondary dysmenorrhea. Nehesions is a common one in those with previous surgeries, especially previous C-sections, multiple previous C-sections. And then the dreaded interstitial cystitis, the fibromyalgia of the bladder. Number four, in a patient with acute abdominal pain, differentiate between a surgical and a non-surgical abdomen. So what do we mean by this? What's a surgical abdomen? It means a condition that is likely to rapidly deteriorate without surgical intervention. A surgical abdomen is often severely painful. It may be refractory to analgesia. Patients often lie prostrate and looking sick. Uh, symptoms typically evolve rapidly. They have a rapid clinical course on history. Uh, patients may be unstable, hemodynamically unstable and dehydrated. And they may say, have signs of peritonitis. So abdominal wall rigidity, percussion rebound tenderness, involuntary guarding, absent or diminished bowel sounds, and Especially tenderness to light palpation is an important sign. It's important to consider the surgical abdomen in the elderly who may present with a more chronic pain course and who may be minimally symptomatic, um, even with a complete bowel obstruction or bowel ischemia. Key feature number five in specific patient groups include group-specific surgical causes of acute abdominal pain in the differential. So trauma patients, think of hemorrhage of any solid organ, hemorrhage or laceration of any solid organ, fluid loss, uh, organ ischemia from vascular injury, or infection from a perforated hollow viscous, especially if they have a delayed presentation. In neonates, think of volvulus, especially as a complication of malrotation, uh, necrotizing enterocolitis, intussusception. Among children of all ages, think of appendicitis. In patients with multiple previous surgeries, think of obstruction. Think of obstruction secondary to adhesions. Adhesions is the most common cause of obstruction in all age groups. 
And there are many more specific patient groups to think of with specific surgical causes. And this is something I'd encourage you to go look up on your own. Key feature number six, given a patient with a life-threatening cause of acute abdominal pain, so a ruptured AAA or a ruptured ectopic are two good examples, uh, recognize it, make the diagnosis, stabilize the patient, and promptly refer. So this key feature is really big. I'm going to talk about the two example ones that they listed off, uh, namely ectopic pregnancy and AAA, ruptured AAA, but two other causes of life-threatening abdominal pain that you should be aware of include mesenteric ischemia and a perforated viscous. And I won't talk about these today, but you should be aware of them, how to make the diagnosis and how to manage. So how do you go about detecting an ectopic pregnancy? You already have a quantitative ACG. The reason you have a quantitative ACG is because you need to do an ultrasound. And ultrasound is only useful if you know the discriminatory zone. So 1,500 units for transvaginal, 6,000 units for transabdominal. If your beta HCG, your quantitative HCG is not above those thresholds, you may not see an intrauterine pregnancy, even if there is one there. So if you're below that level, we'll talk about what you need to do. Um, if you're at that level and you do an ultrasound, you should expect to see an intrauterine pregnancy, or you should expect to see the ectopic site. So a gestational sac with a yolk sac or embryo. You do not need to see cardiac activity at this point. If you're below the discriminatory zone, then what are you going to do with that? Well, you're going to get them back in 24 to 48 hours. You're going to follow them closely. Beta HCG in the first 10 weeks of pregnancy doubles every 48 hours. That's something you just got to keep in the back of your head. It's the rate of change that matters, not the absolute number, which is why you need to get them back. The one number that you get when you first see them in the emergency department is not helpful. It's changes over time that matters. So in almost all ectopic pregnancies, the rate of rise is much less than it is in a normal pregnancy. A good number to keep in your head is the slowest recorded rise over 48 hours associated with a viable IUP was 53%. So you get them back and test and you end up with three different scenarios. First scenario is your beta HCG is rising normally. So it increased at least 53% in 48 hours or it doubled in 72 hours is the other way you can think of it. The patient at this point should be evaluated again with a transvaginal ultrasound when the HCG reaches the discriminatory zone. So if they haven't already had an ultrasound, if they were below the discriminatory zone below, before, um, and they're above it now, they should have a transvaginal ultrasound. If they're not still, if they're not at the level of the discriminatory zone yet, then you need to bring them back in another 48 hours until, with a normally rising HCG, you hit that discriminatory zone. Your second scenario is, so ACG is rising, but not normally. So the point here is the lack of a normal rise in HCG across three measurements is consistent with an abnormal pregnancy. So in these patients with an abnormal rise in HCG, you should be repeating the transvaginal ultrasound. If there are findings that confirm an IUP, an ectopic pregnancy is excluded and the patient should be managed as a failed pregnancy. If an adnexal mass consistent with an ectopic is visualized, then you need medical or surgical management for the presumed ectopic pregnancy. If you haven't visualized an adnexal mass, you can use methotrexate here to exclude an IUP and therefore avoid surgical management of a non-viable IUP down the road. Your third scenario is that the HCG is actually decreasing. So decreasing HCG is most consistent with a failed pregnancy. Um, with these patients, you should follow up 
often, um, not as often as when you're still trying to make it the diagnosis. Um, weekly ACG concentration should be measured until the result is undetectable, because this can still be an ectopic, and you need to follow it to make sure that it continues to decrease uh, to the point of undetectability. Key feature number seven, in a patient with chronic or recurrent abdominal pain, ensure adequate follow-up to monitor new or changing signs or symptoms, and manage symptomatically with medication and lifestyle modification. So these patients can be tricky to deal with because they have non-specific symptoms and they all seem to respond to different treatments, diets, etc. So dietary modification, um, essentially they can try an elimination diet. Lactose is a common culprit, uh, exclusion of gas-producing foods, avoidance of any food allergies they might have. Testing for celiac disease is important not to miss. Um, and in carbohydrate malabsorption or sensitivities, where you can use the FODMAP diet. I've linked to that in the show notes for those who aren't aware of what it is. And sometimes it can be as simple as just increasing the intake of dietary fiber. Beyond dietary modifications, psychosocial therapies can be useful. Just seeing a counselor or a psychologist for general therapy, cognitive behavioral therapy can be useful. And then medications you can use to manage these patients. Antispasmodic agents are useful, especially for short-term exacerbations. Antidepressants, you can trial really any of them. Amitriptyline has some evidence, paroxetine, fluoxetine, sertraline. But in general, these patients require lots of trial and error management and lots of patient buy-in to their own care. And then C in this key feature, for patients with chronic or recurrent abdominal pain, uh, you always need to consider cancer in a patient who's got risk factors. And I'm really glad that the CFPC has included that here because it's too easy to just dismiss these patients as having chronic symptoms, nonspecific, no real organic cause. Um, but look for risk factors of colorectal cancer, especially hereditary colorectal cancer syndromes, alcohol, obesity, age, uh, history of inflammatory bowel disease. Anything that you might think might predispose to cancer should be investigated, and especially constitutional symptoms. And then finally, key feature number eight, given a patient with a diagnosis of inflammatory bowel disease, recognize any extra-intestinal manifestation. So commonly, patients with IBD have inflammatory or autoimmune symptoms elsewhere in their body. So musculoskeletal issues, uh, peripheral arthritis, sacroiliitis, ankylosing spondylitis, osteoporosis. They can have dermatological manifestations, so erythema nodosum, pyoderma gangrenosum, aphthous stomatitis, ocular manifestations, uveitis, scleritis, episcleritis. They can have hepatobiliary disease primarily primary sclerosis and cholangitis. They can develop thromboembolic events, so DBTs and PEs, from their hypercoagulable state. And then kidney stones also are hat in hand for this condition. And that summarizes the eight key features of abdominal pain. I hope you enjoyed this first podcast. I'm looking forward to any feedback you might have. Find me on Twitter or by email.